Peter referenced uh, earlier that uh, we had a great time on Wednesday night, more than anything else, just worshiping the Lord, but in the context of a breakthrough. And, um, you know, we're not about events. It's not like, okay, that was Wednesday night. Now let's see what we can pull out of the hat for Sunday. Uh, God's doing something. And so we want to continue to, if can I say, ride that wave. Um, but I just want to say, with regards to freedom, uh, let's imagine uh, together what freedom actually looks like. And I want to use maybe some examples real quick, just referencing some people that God used in the scriptures. Uh, can we start with Noah, perhaps? Uh, Noah is a man who... Uh, the Bible says it hadn't rained yet upon the earth, and God calls Noah to build an ark. And if you've read the dimensions of this ark, as it says in the book of Genesis, this is huge. Noah became a total laughingstock to everybody around him, building this ark in preparation for a coming flood when no one had ever seen such a thing. And of course, uh, the day came where that flood came, and, and uh, Noah sure didn't look like a laughingstock anymore. Uh, let's look at Abraham. Abraham and Sarah uh, were elderly and barren. Elderly and barren. And God calls him not only a father, but a father of many nations. And of course, comes true on his word because Abraham believed God. He trusted in God. Uh, we can go on to Moses. Moses was a Egyptian, kind of like Jewish by birth, but raised as an Egyptian prince. He had a stutter. He got into trouble in Egypt. He had to flee Egypt. He was basically in exile. He couldn't go back to Egypt because the, the Jews didn't really receive him, and the Egyptians wanted to kill him. And God calls that guy to go back to speak to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, and tell him to let the Jews go uh, from the slavery that they were in. And, and it happened, right? And uh, David, well, let's say Gideon as well. Gideon, the least of his family, who was of the least of the tribe, which tribe was the least of all the tribes of Israel. He's the least of the least of the least. And God comes to him and says, you mighty man of valor, and calls him to be a military leader to lead his people against the powerful Midianite army. And then you've got David, the forgotten shepherd boy, uh, when Samuel the prophet came to anoint the next king and knew it was the son of Jesse, David wasn't even considered amongst the sons because he's just forgotten. He's out there tending smelly sheep, and God says, that is my choice to be the king, and sets up a throne upon which Jesus himself comes and takes. Jesus, later, is born of a teenage girl who gets pregnant out of wedlock, Marries Joseph, an obscure carpenter from the backwaters of Galilee, is raised at absolute nobody, and God says, you, you be the Messiah and call my people. Are you starting to kind of get a pattern here? And then you've got Peter. Jesus calls this guy Peter. He's a smelly fisherman, impulsive, and uh, all sorts of issues with this guy. And God basically, Jesus basically appoints him to be the lead pastor of the first ever church. And then you've got Paul the Apostle, of course, whose resume included killing Christians before he was appointed as the one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I say all of that to say this. 
I want you to imagine, all of us to imagine what would your life look like if you totally believed and there were no hindrances, no excuses, no reasons, there's no fear, no nothing holding you back from exactly what Jesus would have you to do. What would your life look like? Can you picture that? A couple weeks ago, Nita preached about uh, kind of breaking through from fear and said, what would, your look, what would your life look like if you had absolutely no fear? She said, that's probably what God's called you to do. What would your life look like if there were no limitations at all? What would Jesus want to do through your life? If, if, if that was the case. I want to say that's probably your call. And God has called us to such a freedom. Amen? He's called us to freedom. I'm not saying that there aren't any natural limitations. Believe you me, I face the same stuff. However, God, the whole thing of this thing of belief is in spite of, for example, the fact that I'm elderly in the case of Abram and my wife is barren. If God has said, then if I will trust and if I will do whatever I need to do, God will bring it to, to pass. God can make it happen. All he needs is the people who believe. And so today we're going to be talking about breaking free from these things that would keep us out of the call of God because God calls his people to be free. In fact, if you look at kind of the, uh, an important verse, Exodus chapter 5 verse 1, you can flip there now if you want to, Exodus chapter 5 verse 1, as God is forming this covenant people, the Jewish nation, and as many of you would know, he, he spoke to Abraham and he, and he calls him a father of many nations and those, he, he has descendants and they begin to become numerous in number and then as God promised, they would go into Egypt and they were there for 430 years in slavery, during which time they grew to a million in, 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 in number and then their cry from the, from the harshness of the Egyptian enslavement that was upon them, their cry begins to go up to God, and he raises up Moses, Moses as a deliverer, and he speaks things that are important in the calling out of his people out of Egypt and into the purpose for which he had them. And in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, God f first tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh in terms of, calling these people out. And these are the words that, that were used. In fact, there are seven times that God calls uh, to Pharaoh through the person of Moses, and every time there's like a slight variance of the wording. But here's the first time. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That always kind of sounded a little strange to me. Let my people go that they could eat a bunch of food out there in the desert somewhere. That doesn't, it just kind of doesn't add up. But the word, I want you to take note, firstly, let my people go. And I want you to, let's all hear that over ourselves this morning. That is God's spoken word over his people. Let my people go. In other words, there are things that are holding on to God's people, keeping them out of the fullness of what God has planned for them. 
but it's not just let my people go. And a lot of people mistake uh, this idea of freedom as just kind of like freedom so that I'm free now. When in fact, it's freedom so that you can go do what God has called you to do. In this case, that they may have a feast for me in the wilderness. Now, if you look at the original Hebrew language that's hold a feast, this is what that would mean. Uh, it would mean to, my, to hold a feast, to march in a sacred procession, to observe a festival, by implication to be giddy, to celebrate, to dance, to keep a feast, to reel to and fro. Basically, what God is saying is, let my people go that they would be so ecstatic about me, they would go into the wilderness and celebrate, dance, be giddy, and, and, and be, be clamorously foolish in the wilderness before me, seeing my greatness. That is, that's, that's what God is, is saying here. This defines how God calls his people and today, we just want to look at four steps to walking into freedom. I, I want you to picture yourself being free in the same way that the Egyptians just, I mean, excuse me, the Israelites just saw. Being set free to be giddy and to be celebratory and to be having a party because of what God's done in your life. That's, that's what this looks like. Four steps to finding that freedom. First is to be a disciple of Jesus. I'll explain what that means in a bit. Secondly is to identify the stronghold. Thirdly is, to, is repentance. And fourthly is to replace or displace the stronghold. You ready to dig into this? Guys, I want to say I believe that what God is doing in us as a church has potential massive ramifications. And as we're looking at these four steps, please don't just look at this as a sermon. This stuff that we're about to look at is stuff that's actually worked in my life. This, this is like, this isn't theory. This is, I've, I've, I have been bound by things in my past, and this is like what I've discovered to be a pathway into real freedom, not a good sermon. And what we want is to see uh, you, us, as a people, know how to access the freedom that God has for us. That we would be free, which sets off, I believe, a, uh, a, 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 like a, a, it becomes a catalyst of freedom for other people. And so th this first step is to be a disciple of Jesus. If I could just... Uh, share with you briefly kind of and remind because most of you already know the story of when I became a Christian around you know senior year in high school um, again I've told you the story many times so bear with me uh, but shortly after I, I became a Christian and by that I mean I gave my life to Jesus I had an epiphany of the gospel uh, I didn't just have like I didn't just like uh, choose religion or decide to go the straight and narrow. I had an epiphany and understanding that Jesus is real and he has invited me into eternal life and the life with him. And the way to do that is to turn from my life and to give my life to him. And I did that. And it was as I walked that out that I began to f start feeling, most people talk about, like Rodney a few day, weeks ago, he talked about when he became a Christian and he started seeing colors differently and the world seemed beautiful and and you know what happened to me when I became a Christian? 
I started to feel bad about stuff that I had never felt bad about before. And the best way I would know to describe it is I felt the displeasure of Jesus with regard, regarding certain things. And, and the first thing that began to happen was this thing of intoxication, this thing of drug and alcohol use and abuse that was very normal in my life and was completely normal in the social circle of, you know, kind of the suburban Atlanta teenagehood, right? And, uh, and I, it's like I, I realized as I'm reading the scripture, me and my friends are what the scriptures are referring to as the heathen or as the sinners. I mean, that, this, this is like we are categorically that. And I've given my life to Jesus, and I started to feel this sense of, um, of, uh, of uh, I can't think of the right word, a compromise and conviction for sure, uh, conflict, conflict. I've given my life to Jesus, and yet my life is not yielded to Jesus. It's a horrible feeling, actually. It took a year of me resisting that, coming up with arguments in my head, all the re trying to get God to rather deal with something else in my life other than this, because if I was to make a change of not getting intoxicated and the changing from the party lifestyle, it would mean that I would flee all of the social world that I knew. And when you're 18, 19 years old, your social world is rather important. And finally, I came to a point where I was willing to yield that place and take the plunge and say, I've made a decision to follow you wherever you're leading me, and I am become convinced that you do not want me to getting high and drunk anymore. And so I'm just not going to do it. And if I lose all my friends, so be it. I would rather be with you. And you know what happened? I made that change, and I did lose all my friends. And even to this day, I really am not in contact with most of these guys from high school just because the gap became wide. Not that I wanted it. It's a part of the sacrifice. So let me, let me say from the start, do you really want the freedom that Jesus has for you? It's going to entail some sacrifice. You cannot grab a hold of God's will for your life without letting go of something else. And so even, even to this day, I, I, there's still an element of, of sacrifice that I've made for that. But what you get in exchange is incomparable. That my life is not built on a foundation of sand as it was at that time. The joy that I have, the relationship with Jesus that I have, and the friends and the depth of relationship that God has brought into my life since then would never have happened if I would have kept on the same path that I was on. I want to say that for most of us in this room, we probably have some element of the path that we're on that is leading us, and that, that path is, is not going to lead into what God has for us. And to walk in what God has for us is going to be meaning to depart from a path in some way, shape, or form. The first step is to be a disciple of Jesus. If you look with me in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus kind of clarifies this for us. He says, Then Jesus said to those who believed him, How many of you are somebody who believes in Jesus? You don't have to raise your hand, but you can say, you know, to yourself, or, Me, I'm a believer. <laughs> Thank you, whoever did that, Mickey. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if, notice that word, if, 
This is conditional. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. There is a condition. Most of us probably think that we're disciples of Jesus because we attend a Christian church. Or because we say we're Christian or we grew up in a Christian home. Jesus has a very different definition of what it is to be a disciple. It's abiding in his word. And abiding simply means to walk in, to live in, to receive what he says into your heart and to keep it there and to nurture it and to walk it out. Jesus started to speak to me about a change and a transition and an adjustment that he wanted in my life. That was his voice to my heart by the Spirit. Hearing that is not making me a disciple. Abiding in it, allowing it to do the work in me and walking that out, that is a disciple. The freedom that Jesus has is only found in the context of discipleship. Now, what does discipleship look like? Well, you can look over at Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. It's a complete surrender to Jesus. Now, if any of us in the room feel like, oh, like complete surrender to Jesus, I mean, no one really does that. Like, like what does that mean? I don't want to be a part of something that we're declaring on the one hand, Jesus is who he is, and on the other hand saying, but I'm not going to really relate to him as if he's really that. Yes, he's seated at the right hand of God with all power and all authority is the greatest thing of all time, but I'm not going to like relate to him as though he's that. If Jesus is who he says he is, who the, the scripture reveals him to be, who God the Father has said he is, then I want to relate to him accordingly. Now, thank God for the grace of God. If there are moments where we resist him, if there are moments where we deny him and disobey him, God's grace is there for us, right? But that doesn't deny the fact that to become a disciple of Jesus is to make a declaration of who Jesus is and to relate to him accordingly. And how many of you know, Lord is not Jesus' name. Lord is his function. It's not just a, 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 a nominal title. It is a reality. And Lord simply means the one in charge. And so if you look with me at Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, who says? Thank you, Peter. Who says? Is this, is this my, are these my words? Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that does, let's make this clear. I'm not saying go home and hate all of your family. What Jesus is saying is if your family, as has been the case in my life, which is a painful experience, by the way, your family and their will for you and their desires and their kind of ability to understand is countering what you know Jesus leading in, you into, what, which way are you going to choose? Jesus is making it clear. You want to be my disciple? Let me make it clear what this means. This could mean direct conflict with your whole family. And, and, and in my case, this really did happen. Around the age of 19, 20, 21, like my, I, I went from being 
the, 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 the kid that we're worried about because he's into alcohol and drugs and partying and all that stuff, even though we all love him and think he's funny and all that, to becoming the black sheep in the family because of how religiously weird I became in their eyes. Not, not in Jesus' eyes, in their eyes. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is a, to this day, my relationship is kind of strained in my family because they're like looking at me, what are you, what? What are you doing? You're Detroit leading a church of like 20 people. Like, weren't you supposed to like do something with your life? You, you following what I'm saying? This is the reality. If you want to really walk in freedom. And so Jesus says, uh, let's continue. You cannot be my disciple. And then he goes on to elaborate. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, not my words. Jesus's. Let it, let's get back to a holy regard of what it really means to be doing this thing that we're all saying this morning that we're a part of. Jesus is worth these words that we're talking about. He's worth it. If he's not, then let's go home. This is a waste of time if Jesus isn't worth it. But he's worth it. He is absolutely worth it. If he is who he is, he's worth everything. He, gave, he, the one who's worth it, gave up everything for me. It's my entry-level response to give him my everything. What is my everything in light of God giving his everything? So he goes on, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Unless after he has laid the foundation, he is not able to finish it, and all who see begin to mock him, saying, this man began to, be, began to, began to build and was not able to finish it. What, he, what he's talking about is this idea of, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow you. He's saying, oh yeah? You want to? You, okay. You are welcome to be my disciple. Doorway is open. Let me tell you what that means. Count the cost now. Because following me is going to come into direct conflict with the dreams and desires you have for your life, for your fears, the things that you're most afraid of. It's going to come into direct contact with your paradigms and your, your, your comfort level. All of that. He then go, goes on to say it from another direction. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down and first consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, listen to this, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. In the moment that I gave my life to Jesus, 1996, let's say, 95, something like that, a long time ago. In that moment, I knew I was, I, I'm yielding my life to, into your hands. Did I know all of what would be required from that point? No. But I knew I'm giving my life to you. You now are in charge of me. That is what it is to be a believer, a disciple. You follow? And then it's in the walking out of that that God begins to lead you into things that give you opportunity to, if you can understand what I mean by this, prove that commitment. Not that you're trying to prove anything to God. We don't have anything to prove to him. It's the walking out of the reality of that commitment into 
more freedom. So what I'm wanting to say with all of that, be a disciple of Jesus, is the freedom that Jesus wants to bring you and me into, it only becomes apparent in the course of following Jesus. In other words, what I just said before about the intoxication and the substance abuse in my own life, that was not an issue in my life until I started following Jesus. May have been an issue in my parents' lives, but it wasn't a problem for me. I had it under control. I'm still making decent grades. I, you know, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm just like all the other kids in school, so I'm, I'm fine. Start following Jesus, all of a sudden I start to become aware this is an impediment in between me and doing what Jesus wants me to do. Does that make sense? It's following Jesus that the stronghold becomes apparent, and you may not have even known about the stronghold prior to that. So the first thing of walking in freedom and the whole context of freedom is being a disciple of Jesus. Hope that makes sense. Let's go on to step number two, is to identify the stronghold. So when the children of Israel, as we were talking about earlier, they were released from Egypt, they wander, as many of you know, for 40 years in the wilderness, and they are given an opportunity to go into the promised land. All of this is what we call a type and a shadow. It's all, maybe you might say, a metaphor to speak to us of things that are actual realities for us today under the new covenant. In other words, God delivered his people out of Egypt. We're not delivered out of an actual country. I mean, yeah. But God, God brings us, delivers us out of a world system and delivers us into the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And so when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, many of you would know they, they spent 40 years in the wilderness but they only had to have spent two and a half years. At two and a half years, they, they got to the Jordan River. They could have crossed over then, but they didn't because of doubt and unbelief. You follow what I'm saying? In Numbers, and you can turn there with me now, Numbers is like, what, the fourth book of the Old Testament? Chapter 13, verse 1, we read about this. This is the moment right here where they first get to the precipice of the promised land. And in verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, every one a leader among them. And they, uh, they returned from spying out the land after 40 days, and now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. If you, uh, did I skip over a few verses? I did. I didn't tell you to go to verse 25. My apologies. You must be wondering um, what, what planet I'm on. Yeah, skip over down to verse 25, and then pick up in verse 27. And then they told him, and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Remember I said the second step is to identify the stronghold? Here's that language, that terminology. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. This is the idea of what a stronghold is. And they are very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak, which means giants, uh, living there. Strongholds are the obstacles in your belief system, in your heart, in your thinking, in your inner belief system that you face. They're like walls 
as you're a disciple of Jesus, following the voice of your shepherd, you will come into walls of things, of, uh, of behaviors and belief systems that keep you from fully being able to walk out what Jesus is, is leading you into. Some of you know exactly what I'm saying. So for me, that first thing was intoxication and drug abuse and getting high and drunk and all that. That was the, f- the first thing that I began to deal with in my following of Jesus. I realized I can't do this and follow Jesus. Jesus is leading me out of this, and I've got a question. Who is, is he really Lord? If he's Lord, I'm going to have to stop doing this. If I stop doing this, I may lose all my friends. And as I already told you, I did lose all of my friends. Not that they hate me, they just kind of, all right, we don't know what to do with you anymore. Gave up getting high because of Jesus? Like, what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Thank you, Gloria. It, it's, it's as you're following Jesus, you begin to come into these things just like the people that we just read. They're going into the promised land. God has spoken this promised land over them. I'm giving it to you to inherit. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. They get there, and there's not just milk and honey in the land, if you've noticed. There's also giants and fortified cities. And I want to say to you, Jesus' will for you is flowing with milk and honey, and there's also giants in your land. And to truly follow Jesus is to not just look at those giants and be like, oh, (laughs) And walk away and, okay, God, I'll, uh, I'll serve you out here in the wilderness for a few more years. I, you know, we can just do that, rather. It's to look at the giant and to say, not by my power and not because they're weak, but because of him and, and his faithfulness and who he is, I'm going to face that giant. Against all hope, I'm going to face that giant. And I'm going to enter in and take the land that God has given me. And so, check this out. In fact, I'll say another one. Again, this isn't necessarily news. I haven't, it's not that I've never shared this with you, but one of the next things that happened in my life was the fear of public speaking, the biggest fear in my life. I was petrified. I would rather die than have to stand up in front of a group and talk. And then as I'm following this Jesus and I've followed him, I've given up my social circle. I've lost my friends. I'm not drinking and getting high anymore. I'm not getting drunk. I mean, Jesus, I'm ready for heaven by now. Like, I'm holy, right? And then he starts putting in my heart that you're called to preach. Oh, no. Not good. I'm going to give the rest of my life, if I follow Jesus, to doing the thing that I fear most. That is like, that looks like bondage. That doesn't look like freedom. That looks like bondage. And so, yet again, another obstacle, another giant. Like, what what am I going to do? And ultimately, it has to boil down to this one thing. Above all else, I'm a disciple of this one. And either he is who he is, and if he is who the scripture says he is, he's worthy of me giving the rest of my life to the thing that I fear most. He's worthy of it. The cool thing is it doesn't end there. As I began to step in in obedience against all hope and began to face that giant... Today, I would say I'm probably in my happiest, as you can maybe tell right now, doing this very thing. I would have never known that had I looked at that giant and turned around and said no. So let's find out what happens when these people did that. 
They said, verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Can we pause there, and I want to ask you, can you identify what is, give it a name, what may be the stronghold that you're facing? What is the obstacle that maybe keeps on coming up and manifesting itself and you're trying to just kind of sweep it under the carpet or trying to turn your back from it or pretend it's not there or ask God to rather deal with something else in my life? What is, what is yours? Because the second thing, after choosing to be a disciple of Jesus, which means to follow him wherever he is leading, the second thing is to be able to identify and give it a name. What, when, as he is pressing in on an issue to recognize what it is. They did right there, but here's the problem. The next verse, well, actually, let me just say, before we read the next verse, as you begin to face this giant, there are going to be two voices inside of your heart. I don't care how spiritually mature or immature you are. We are all going to have these two voices. One is the voice of the Spirit and the voice of faith, that is not looking at the giant or looking at you. It's looking at God. God has said, therefore, I'm okay. I can take this giant. And in you also, in Jesus' name I prophesy to you, there is going to be the voice of faith in the flesh. That is not looking at God. It's looking at the giant and looking at your inadequacies. And there will be a clash inside of you. Guarantee. Freedom comes to those who determine, I am going to hear the voice of God. Let's read this verse 30. Then Caleb, thank God for Caleb, the voice of the spirit, the voice of the flesh. Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And he said, let us go up at once and take possession. Why? For we are well able to overcome it. I don't think Caleb was taking stock of the number of the Israelites and saying, you know what, we've got them. He was taking stock of the one who called him. And on that basis, he says, we are well able, able to overcome him. Verse 31, here's the tragedy. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. If Caleb believed that we're well able to overcome them because of the strength of the God who's with us, why did these other spies that went with Caleb believe that the, the giants were stronger than them? Because they simply were looking at the giants and their own inadequacy rather than him. How many of you guys have giants? Are we starting to get the idea here? Gloria's with me. That's cool. The rest of you don't have your hand up, just don't know it yet. <laughs> Paul's got his, his foot up. and We all have giants, and the thing I've learned is once you face one giant... And you believe that when you finally, if somehow by the grace of God, finally overcome this giant, you're going to be free for the rest of your life. And you are to face another giant. And then another one, which is the very story of the Israelites when they finally did take possession of the promised land. Piece by piece, place by place, little by little, taking the land. Don't think that you and I aren't walking the same thing out today. We are. This is what it is. And I'm going to define what these things are a little bit more in just a, just a minute. But I want you to know, it's that voice. Are we going to listen to the Caleb voice or the doubt and unbelief? 
So what do we do now once we've kind of established this? We repent. We repent. Now some of you think, oh geez, like are you one of these guys who stands on the corner and, you know, with the sign and the soapbox and the yelling at people with a megaphone, repent, the end is near. Uh, just in case, I've never done that, just in case you are asking that question. Repent is, is a beautiful thing, if you re- once you really understand what it is. Repent is simply, if I'm grabbing a hold of something that's bringing destruction in my life, let's say this table is bringing destruction in my life, repent is, is simply releasing my grip here to grab a hold of something that's going to bring freedom to me. That's all it is. It's recognizing this is not helping me. God has something else, so I need to know what that other thing is so I can grab onto it instead of that. I had to grab onto other things in place of drugs and alcohol. I had to grab onto trusting God in place of the fear of public speaking and so on and so forth. And so Jesus says, Matthew 4, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? I actually spent a long time not knowing what that actually meant and and finally realized it just simply means at hand means within grasp. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus was proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven, that realm that has been cut off from us since man first sinned, Heaven, this thing that we talk about and we hope to go to when we die. That realm, Jesus is proclaiming, that realm is here. And not only is it here now, it is within grasp. You can grab a hold of it. That's good news, right? But how do we grab a hold of it? According to Jesus, you have to first repent. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the way that you can receive this gift is to let go of the things that oppose the kingdom of heaven. The invitation into the heaven into heaven is to let go, at least say it this way, to, to enter into your promised land, you've got to let go of Egypt. You follow? There's a displacement that happens. And so, even like in AA, <laughs> you guys probably think I'm like seriously... Uh, <laughs> I promise you, I'm, 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 I'm good, okay? But, but let me just say, maybe from experience, that even in AA, the 12-step program, the first step is you've got to realize that you've got a problem. I mean, even in AA, they, they, they know that. They're the first, and here's the thing. Everybody can say, oh, the drug addicts and the alcoholics, they've got problems. Well, what about people who are held in bondage to fear? What about people who are held in bondage to all the socially acceptable things? It's still bondage. And the first step to freedom is to realize you need freedom. You need to release. You need to let go of this and to, and to no longer tolerate it in your life. And so right now, I want to ask you, are you willing to repent? That is where freedom is, my friends. I bucked that thing for a whole year. I can remember crying, driving down after Christmas break, back to college, crying, saying, God, if I'm going to be free of this thing, you've got to send me somebody to encourage me to, because I didn't know any other Christians at that time. 
I mean, I bucked it for a year, and of course, that very next day, I met for the first time ever another Christian that had the same experience I did, which became a, a total change. Getting off the subject, I'm wanting to say, are you willing to not buck the system, to not look at the giant and pretend it's not there, to turn away from it? Are you willing to face it and say, this giant has to be slain? So the first thing, you can't do that if you haven't made a decision to be a disciple. And you can't really make that decision unless you have a revelation of who Jesus is. If I think Jesus is just a prophet or a teacher, I'm probably not going to follow him wherever. But if I realize that he is the son of God, he's the highest in authority, seated at the right hand of God, king of all, ki of all kings, lord of all lords, what other option do I have to, but to follow him wherever he is leading me? Once I do that, then... I'm going to start seeing what the strongholds are. Then I have an opportunity to repent. And fourthly, and lastly, is to build what I call a stronghold of the Lord. In other words, if we're tearing down strongholds, the way to really find freedom is to displace those strongholds with a stronghold of the kingdom. And if you would, just turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read these three verses, and then we'll, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of end it that I want to have an opportunity to respond as we do. Build a stronghold of the Lord. Listen to these amazing words from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, and let's make sure that we all understand what's being said here. Uh, we walk in the flesh. All Paul is saying is that we walk in a natural, physical body. In a natural, physical earth. That's what Paul's saying. Yes, you are a spirit, you have a spirit, you commune with God in the spirit, but you're also a body, you have a body, and, and we walk in the flesh, Paul says. We do not war according to the flesh. In other words, the war that we're in is not fleshly, it's not physical and natural like a natural war. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, in other words, natural, physical, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. The first thing I would just want to point out, you and I are in a war. I would dare say most people who claim to be Christians do not really believe that they are in a war. And if you don't believe you're in a war, and consequently you're not fighting, are you winning? We need to realize what the war is. And if I identify that you're in a war, you've got to know the only way that you can know you're in war is if there's an enemy. And identify what that enemy is. For me, it was the fear of public speaking. For me, it was dependence on substances. and what, What's our current war? We're in a war, folks. We're taking ground that God has promised to give us, and the way we do that is to fight and we're not fighting as natural armies with physical uh, weapons. We have weapons that are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. What is strongholds? The Greek word for strongholds would mean a castle, a stronghold, a fortress. It is the same thing that they faced in the, when they took the promised land. Remember that they said that they're stronger than we and they have fortified cities? That's a stronghold. So Paul's referring to this Old Testament picture and saying the battle, the spiritual battle that we're in today, we are pulling down 
strongholds. Now you may say, well, what is a stronghold? How do we do that? Let's let Paul elaborate on this. Casting down, are you ready? Arguments. Your stronghold has a voice. And it makes arguments. In your heart, I had an argument. If I give up drugs and alcohol, I'm going to lose all my friends. And the, the, the bite of that little voice is that it was true. What that voice was not, was failing to tell me, is that if I give these things up, I'm going to know freedom. I'm going to be released more fully into God's purpose and plan for me. And God will see me through and God will give me a new network of family and friendship and depth of partnering relationships that have fulfilled my soul more than I could even explain to you today. That, the argument didn't tell me that part of the story. But it did tell me everything of why I can't or why I shouldn't. You, my friends, have an argument, a stronghold, mighty through God for the uh, casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's what a stronghold does. God has his knowledge. For the Israelites, God said, I've given you this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I have given it to you. He didn't say anything about the giants that were there. He knew about the giants, but he didn't tell them at that stage. He just told them, there's a promised land. You got this place. And when they came there, they found out that there were high things that exalted themselves against what God had said. Am I making sense? Those enemies that lived there and possessed that, that land, they f taunted themselves as, you cannot take this land, we're bigger than you, we're fortified, you have no right, no memorial, you can't come into this place, you're going to die if you even try. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God Check us out, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That is the whole thing right there. Is God doesn't just want to have a church on the earth of people who are good Christians and come to church on Sunday. God needs a people on the earth whose thoughts are coming into sync with his thoughts. And when our thoughts are opposing what he has said, we take those thoughts captive and make them come under captivity to obedience to Jesus. And when that happens, guess what can happen through us? The kingdom of God can come. The kingdom of God that is at hand can now be possessed by God's people and manifest into the earth. Freedom. That same God speaks over your soul this morning. Let my people go that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. That they can be celebrating and giddy about my goodness and my freedom. I, I, I might want to get a little giddy right now, in fact, myself. Because as I think about the bondage I've been in, and that I am patently not in that bondage anymore. That makes me a little celebratory. 
And I know it's not because if you're thinking, oh, you're such a good, you're a pastor, you're such a good, you know, it has nothing to do with my goodness. The whole key is saying yes to Jesus. That's it. He's the good one. He always brings deliverance. He always brings the, the perfect will of God, but it does mean that we have to surrender all to him in order to receive what he is, is ordaining for us. And part of what I'm doing right now is just trying to whet your appetite to where you are beginning to realize surrender is for my good. Surrender is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. In, in, just as we close and respond, um, I'd like to just go back into song. Can I invite